Ready. Hello, class. This is your Professor Debbie. Welcome to True Crime University, where we have intellectual discussions about crime. This is a class for mature audiences with mature language. Our purpose is to learn about criminals, not glorify them. All the information I have is from public sources. How's everybody today? Did you have a good Thanksgiving? Hope you didn't eat anybody. Are you ready to continue talking about this Dritsack, that's Norwegian for shitbag. Yeah, I've been trying to learn some Norwegian. Cool language. Now, I want to introduce you to a very important woman named Gruharlem Brutland. She was a Norwegian prime minister for three terms, 1981, 1986 to 89, and 1990 to 96. She was the first female prime minister of Norway, which is quite an accomplishment. She was a member of the Labour Party. She was a feminist. And sadly, like a lot of women leaders, she had a lot of people that didn't like her. You know, the male chauvinist pigs who thought that women's place was in the kitchen. And when she was prime minister, there were a lot of stickers around Norway that said, kick her out, which is quite rude. The reason I mention her is because she became prime minister and the leader of the country and the focus of much attention at a time when little Anders Bering Breivik was coming of age. So we know that he would grow to hate the Labour Party. I think it's safe that we could call him a male chauvinist. He hated feminism and a lot of the things that she went by the name grow. A lot of the things that she symbolized and stood for. And this was kind of, at this time, kind of a, a cultural revolution in Norway in the 80s. There's a female prime minister. Women are gaining their independence. They're no longer... Uh, suppressed. They're going out more in the workforce and getting more powerful positions, as I think was pretty much around the world. But I think in retrospect that it happened earlier in Norway than in a lot of places. So one person who we could say was not a fan of Gro was Little Anders. He would later say that above his mother and above all else, he hated her more than any other woman. And this will become important later in the story. But when we left off, Andrews was being a brat. Although now he's probably about 13, so he's becoming just an older, more serious brat. And the family care services had tried to go to court and say that he was endangered by the psychological instability of his mother, but the court just kind of gave up on that. And strangely, because, you know, he has this hatred, this xenophobia, which is like a dislike of the immigrants, he made friends with a little Pakistani boy. And this kid may have been looking back, what definitely one of his best friends that he ever had. His name was Ahmed, and the other kids called him Brownie. So 
Anders befriended him. They would play basketball, watch movies together, and around age 13 is when he got into what you would call criminal behavior. He was a very serious tagger, a graffiti artist. And in Norway, in Oslo at that time, this was actually quite a serious crime. And it's kind of funny. It, it shows you what a peaceful country Norway is in general, that graffiti artists were like their biggest worry. But he had to have a name, you know, like a cool, I guess, a street name if he wanted to join one of these graffiti gangs. So he picked a name from Marvel Comics and the person or the character was called Morg, M-O-R-G, who was an executioner who carried a double-edged axe. There were four boys. There was Anders, Ahmed, and two other boys called Wick and Spock, not their real names. But they formed a kind of a gang, and they were into hip-hop culture, which I was too when I was like, I don't know, 13, 14, whatever. I mean, I just liked rap and hip-hop music. I didn't. They were into breakdancing and rapping and they were going to hip-hop and rap concerts. And the hip-hop movement actually started in the Bronx. And I guess it took a while to travel to Norway. But now this movement was in Oslo. And Anders embraced this movement. He wore what you call hip-hop clothes. He put gel in his hair. And he always went overboard with stuff. He, he made himself look a little bit ridiculous just because he went... I guess he tried too hard, is what you would say. And these people were really into graffiti designs. I guess it is kind of an art form. Before they would go out on what they called raids with bags full of their equipment, like colored markers and aerosol cans, they would draw their designs on paper. Then they would go out at night and they would draw stuff on walls and fences. And there was a whole bunch of like rules and you know, do's and do nots. It was a, like a subculture, really. And I probably learned more about that than you really want to know. But what's interesting is that he would sit there with a map of Oslo and plot, like he was plotting to go to battle. You know, he would sit there with his map and, you know, mark stuff like, okay, here, you know, let's go. I want to wrap my name here and it's kind of like a game like the aim of being a good tagger was to write your name in important public places that people would see it like if you wrote your name on some I don't know important bus station or whatever it would be worth more points than some fence somewhere that nobody's gonna see and what struck me about this is the amount of effort he put into planning these raids. He would do like reconnaissance, you know, go to these places, check out the security there. And if this sounds like a rehearsal for what's to come, it definitely is. So he always had this kind of mindset, like he was playing war games or something and You'll definitely see this behavior come out later on when he plans his real attacks. So what his goal was, was to be what they called king. And that, would, that was a title in the graffiti community. And this title had to be bestowed upon you by other artists. You had to start out small and then you would work yourself up 
this like ladder and certain things like more daring acts like painting a whole wall or painting somewhere that's heavily surveyed would get you more recognition and appreciation. And the ultimate test supposedly was if you got arrested and didn't squeal or, you know, tattletale on the other taggers. So Oslo officials consider this a serious crime, which, you know, is kind of amusing, but they did. In the news, they would talk about a war on graffiti and they would call these taggers mafia. They hired security guards and they would get real serious. As the 90s went on, they started arresting more taggers or young people, like teenagers, early 20s. They would find them, and eventually they would give them prison sentences. The Winter Olympics of 1994 were held in Lillehammer, which was near Oslo. So the city really cracked down during that time. They didn't want any graffiti or mess for the Olympics because literally everybody in the world was watching and they wanted the city to be clean, which is understandable, of course. So the Labor City Council, and as I stressed, the Labor Party launched an anti-graffiti campaign. They called it Taggerhead. At the time, Anders was about 15. And he got caught one night, two o'clock in the morning, during the Olympics. Him and Ahmed were out doing their thing, and they were arrested. Their parents were called. Due to the fact that they were so young, their punishment was to wash buses. And they said, okay, don't get caught doing this again. The gangs in Oslo were kind of like the ones that we have here that you hear about, like Bloods, Crips, etc. They were based on like ethnicity. They had Pakistanis and Somalis, and their territory, I guess you would call it, was based on where they lived. They had names for each other. The darker people, like the Somalis, were called darkies, and the Norwegians, kind of funny, were called potatoes, don't know why, or yogurt face. The little kids, or little graffiti wannabe kids, looked up to Anders, they thought that he had style with the way he made his letters. They liked his attitude. They liked the colors he used and the shapes he used. So one time, the four of them, the, you know, the the four graffiti gang, they took the ferry over to Denmark, Copenhagen, because for whatever reason, aerosol paint was a lot cheaper there. So they got 300 cans of it, and they got arrested on the ferry back to Oslo. One of the parents figured out what was going on, and they called the ferry company. Not quite sure if it was illegal to buy uh, spray cans, if that was like what we would call here possession of instruments of crime. I, I don't know, but anyway... Something happened around this time that kind of made Anders sad. His sister Elizabeth wanted to get out of the house. She can't really blame her. And when she was 18, she left for the United States to work as an au pair. And she eventually married an American dude, and and she would stay here. Venka started dating an army officer, and he actually got on pretty good with Anders. And he, he was sort of like a dad figure to him for a while. Sometimes he would see Jens, but Jens wasn't very happy with him. He thought he was lazy, apathetic, had no desire to learn or better himself. His dad would later admit that 
He thinks Anders was craving love and attention, but Jens was a very aloof kind of parent. He was kind of cold, actually. Eventually, Ahmed got expelled, and what's kind of funny is that, well, Anders found himself kind of on the outside again. He thought that he was this really good, talented graffiti artist or tagger that other people looked up to, but the other people would say later, no, he only thought that he was. He was actually more of like a wannabe, like a hanger-on. And years later, after the attacks, the kid that was named Wick was interviewed by the police. And he said, quote, he belonged to the cool gang for a while, even though he wasn't cool. He was basically a fifth wheel. In the end, we wouldn't put up with him any longer, end quote. He supposedly weighed them down. And then he started hanging around the younger boys who, you know how younger kids, like anybody that's older, they think they're cool, just mainly like not knowing any better. So he broke one of the biggest rules of tagging. The rule is don't tag over others' work. And that, okay, picture like a, uh, you're in a museum and you see a painting and you drew your own painting over that painting. Like nobody would do that, right? That's really rude. So that's the way it was in this community. He wrote his name Morgue over somebody else's name. And supposedly he was caught. It doesn't say exactly arrested or charged, but caught seven times by either police or security guards or something. He was sent to the child welfare duty officer who called his mother. And it says in his file, quote, there was genuine concern about his involvement in the tagging community, end quote. So word got out that he had committed the cardinal sin, which is squealing. I don't know if he did or not, but the word was that he did. So he was then a pariah of this community, and nobody would have anything to do with him. They started to bully him. He supposedly had a big nose. And the reason I say supposedly is if you see pictures of him as an adult, he doesn't. And that's because he had it fixed. Yeah, he's that vain that he got cosmetic surgery. We'll talk about that a little later. So he started lifting weights, trying to, you know, make himself muscular. And when he was 15 and he was arrested for the third time for graffiti, his dad kind of like disowned him. And he told him, he's like, um, okay, I'm done with you. You're, you know, you've crossed a line. And uh, realistically, it's not like he killed somebody like he did later. He was just spray painting. So just to give you an example of his relationship with his dad, like I said, this was at age 15, and he never saw his dad again. For high school, he went to Oslo Community School, which is supposedly conservative. He was still considered like a social misfit. And one thing that was weird about him, well, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of them, but he used Pakistani gang talk that he obviously picked up from his friend Ahmed and from hanging around. You know how different groups of people have their own kind of slang? And he would talk this way and people would snicker and they'd be like, what the fuck is with that dude? The word on him was, he's nuts. Steer well clear of him. So even at this young age, 
the other kids knew that he wasn't quite right. So what he does is he reinvents himself. He started to dress preppy and he started to be like really articulate. He basically turned himself into a yuppie. And hopefully everybody knows what a yuppie is. He got real interest in money and financial material things. This would be about the time... Oh, he wore makeup. Like, uh, I don't mean like eyeliner and stuff like goth kids, but like face makeup. I'm not exactly sure why, but he was teased about it. And at some point he did get cosmetic surgery. He got his nose forehead and chin fixed. I don't know what was wrong with him or where he got that kind of money, but he did. And he was really obsessive about his appearance. I'm really reminded of, did you ever see the movie? Not so much the movie, but the book, American Psycho. The psycho character in that, played by Christian Bale in the movie, is about a an American dude who's a psychopath and he kills people and it takes place in the 80s. It's kind of like a parody of the materialism of the 80s. And this dude is like an ultra yuppie. He worships Donald Trump. And this is way before he was into politics. He was just like this really rich dude. He worked on Wall Street. He was all into fancy clothes and skincare products and obsessed with his appearance and making money and presenting like the perfect looking person. But at night, he would kill people. And this reminds me so much of Anders. He got a part-time job as a telephone salesman for a company named Telia. And these people sold everything like magazines, calendars, etc. Then he worked for customer service for this same company. And his boss noticed that he was responsible and seemed like a hard worker and he gave him more tasks. In his spare time, he started playing the stock market and apparently he found that he was good at this. I know absolutely nothing about the stock market, but one in one day he made 200,000 kroner. That uh, sounds like a whole lot of money. When he was 18, he left school Six months before final exams, I have no idea why he would do that, but his mother wasn't real pleased. He told his boss he wanted to start his own business, and his goal was to be a millionaire. Again, obsessed with money. He started a business with a friend called Bering and Kerner Marketing, and they had an office in the basement of a building. What they did was they took, or actually he stole, from the telemarketing job a database of the names and contact information of rich foreigners in Norway. He called them heavyweights. He would call them and offer them cheaper call rates than the company he worked for. So that's, I don't know if that's technically illegal, but it's shady. It most certainly is shady. And most of the people he called were rightly so skeptical. So he had a fight with this business partner and they ended this business after a year. He went back to the telephone sales and he's still saving away this money, thinking that he's going to start his own business and get rich. What he wanted to do is that they never use the word data miner, but that's what it was. He wanted to get a database of information from where he worked, you know, people's names, phone numbers, information about them, and sell it to other businesses. 
and that's called data mining. And again, I'm not real sure of the legality of it, but it's it's kind of shitty. One of those, I guess you would call it a gray area of business. So then he set up an advertising firm, sold outdoor advertising space. And interestingly, this is worth mentioning. When he had this advertising business, he shared an office space in a law firm building. And these people all ate in the same lunchroom. So he found himself sometime lunching with a guy named Gear Lipestad. He was a lawyer and he was actually the owner of the law firm who owned the office building. And this dude was of a note to him because he represented a 15-year-old neo-Nazi named Nikolai Weisler, who was on trial for killing another 15-year-old, a Norwegian kid from Ghana, you know, Africa. So I, I guess he kind of fouled this information away in his head for a future time, as you'll see. Then he decided that he wanted to be a Mason. So he made contacts, he talked to people, he kept trying to get into this elite group of Masons, you know, the Freemasons, the secret society. So he started using the title Bachelor of Small Business and Management, which he'd never had. I mean, he didn't even finish high school, we know that. And this is kind of funny, this is how big his ego was. He figured that he'd studied enough to use the title, like he earned it. That'd be like me saying, well, you know, I've read enough about psychology. Well, I do have a degree in that. Psychiatry, mental illness. So I'm just going to go ahead and call myself a psychiatrist because, you know, close enough. That's basically what he did. Again, ego. Take note. So he took a course in preparation for political office, and this was presented or put on by the Progressive Party. He studied philosophers such as John Locke, Adam Smith, and Ayn Rand. He hung around Progressive Party youths, and they did have like a, a social scene. Most of them were single, so he would hang out, try to, you know, pick up the ladies. He met one named Lenny Langemere, and they kind of hit it off. She was smart, they went to parties, watched movies together. She found him intellectual and exciting, and he would lecture her on Adam Smith and Ayn Rand. She'd been in the military, and she was quoted in the news as saying, tougher immigration policies and strengthening the armed forces are the things I care about most. And this was way before his, you know, 2011. Notice that she says, tougher immigration policies. They both were, I don't know if I want to say anti-Islam, but they weren't fans of it. They were kind of critical of it. They were, well, Anders was one of the things that he was outspoken of and didn't like, was women's lib and also the welfare state, like things like maternity leave, paternity leave. And he made this quote in a speech, which is pretty disturbing. And it says, no one who has a good time with her husband in bed deserves financial help as a result. I had to read that like three times. I'm like, what? What is he talking about? What he was talking about was child care, like basic, you know, maternity, paternity leave, care for kids, which he was at one point. His, him and his mother had government help. Remember all the help they had? 
Who do you think paid for that? The government. It's kind of strange. But his party, meaning the uh, Progressive Party, thought that immigrants were getting too much help, too much welfare. They were taking over. After the terrorism acts of Al-Qaeda in 2001, the Progressive Party really stepped up with this rhetoric. Muslims are dangerous. You know, all Muslims are terrorists. We must get rid of them. We don't want them here, blah, blah, blah. Now he's decided that he wants a political career. And he starts getting on, spending a lot of time on the internet, finds groups about politics. And he said some bizarre things, which isn't too surprising. He said Norway had a loser mentality. And he was starting to develop some seeds in his mind that I think you know where I'm going with this or where this is going. That, you know, Norway is destined for disaster because of their attitudes towards immigrants, towards Islam, towards feminism, and basically just like modern things. He made up a chart of like organization. You know how organized he is? You know how he is with his charts and planning and stuff like that? Well, he needed a gun. He wanted a gun for this plans, any future plans that he had. And in order to, it's, Norway is not just like the United States where you can just walk into Walmart and come out with a gun. You kind of have to go through a process. At the time, one of these things was you had to belong to some kind of gun club. So he joined the Oslo Pistol Club and his friend Lenny was familiar with guns. Of course, she'd been in the military and the two of them would go to the gun club and, and practice. Interestingly, his mother, Venka, got pretty ill around 2002. She had a herpes infection and I must admit, I did not know that this could happen. It apparently spread to her brain, and she had a drain in her head, like, you know, draining, I guess, spinal fluid or cerebral cerebral fluid out of her, and she needed extensive nursing care, which he did provide. Now, I mentioned that he's kind of got all these different things going on at the time. I guess you could say he has a lot of irons in the fire. He started to develop political aspirations for the Progressive Party. He wanted to be involved in the party. I don't know exactly how high he thought he would get or he wanted to get, but he wanted to get some kind of nomination and he didn't get it. So he was irritated and his comments online and political groups started getting more negative because now he's mad because he didn't get this nomination. One of his comments said, quote, The sad thing about the political system in Norway is that it often isn't the most competent who get political power, but those who are best at networking, end quote. One of the last posts that he wrote in the summer of 2003, he predicted civil war in Norway once Muslims were the majority. He had this, I don't know if, well, it certainly I don't think is realistic, this fear that the country would be invaded by Muslims. And he called it the Islamization of the West, which I don't know if that's an actual thing or just something he made up. Some people did agree with him on his radical views and others were like, whoa, dude, you're like really out there. We don't want anything to do with you. So, 
just like so many other groups he'd been in. Remember the graffiti gang? They got tired of his bullshit and they pushed him out. The same went with politics. He just has this way of making himself unwelcome. So he was like, okay, if this party doesn't want to endorse me, well, screw them. You know, I'll just see to it that my beliefs and policies are carried out in other ways, which is never a good idea. So his next get-rich-quick scheme was selling fake diplomas. And the irony here, because we're talking about somebody who never finished high school, he supposedly made two million kroner doing this. And it was pretty convoluted how he did it. He had a few different people in this scheme around the world. There were accounts in Antigua and Barbados so that he wouldn't have to pay taxes because Norway does have a pretty high tax rate. His mother, and I don't know if she did this knowingly or not, but she helped him launder the money. He would ask her to open these different bank accounts. She would deposit the cash and then transfer it back to him. And within a short time, she laundered 400,000 kroner. So she was either really, really dumb or she knew that he was up to no good. So he set up this site, website called diplomaservices.com. And it's no longer there because I look for it in the fall of 2002. What he did was he charged people money for various diplomas. And for $100, you could get like a high school diploma. For the fee of $295, you could get a complete pack of exam certificate and a graduate diploma from the university of your choosing. And he had a dude in Indonesia actually design or draw up the diplomas. And then he would email the file to Anders, and then he would print them. He made medical school diplomas, engineering qualification. At his highest peak in his business, he had orders for several hundred diplomas a month, which tells you how greedy and dishonest people are. And of course, this is people from all over the world. He was now able to afford his own apartment, but still being the lazy mom's boy that he was, he paid his mom to come over and clean and do his laundry. It's kind of amusing. On his website, he covered his ass by saying that the diplomas were intended for props, like in films and such. Like, yeah, right. Nobody is going to believe that. He never really liked girls. He said that Norwegian girls were too liberated and wouldn't make good housewives, and the friends would, would tease him. And it's fine if he's gay, but he wasn't. He just didn't like the, uh, the characteristics that he considered Norwegian girls to be. And, of course, what he wanted was a 50s housewife. You know, who, when he came home, she'd be like, oh, honey, give me your shoes, here's your slippers and your cigar, and I'll make dinner. That's what he wanted, okay, because he was a male chauvinist pig, but we already know that. 
In December 2004, he was looking at a dating website from Ukraine, and he met a girl named Natasha from Belarus. And this would be probably the closest he came to having like a relationship. They wrote to each other and they even visited each other. And again, this is a good way to showcase his strange ideas and behaviors as, as if he didn't have enough. When he visited her in Belarus and went to her house, he was afraid to eat there because he was worried about radiation. I mean, if it was like the uh, city surrounding Chernobyl, Chernobyl is the name of the plant. I know that. And the town surrounding it is called something else. I could maybe see, well, people aren't even allowed to live there because of the radiation. But I don't know what the thing about radiation was or where it came from. But he didn't want to eat the local, local produce. He was afraid the water was contaminated. And he has so many, just like his dad did, so many traits that are similar or coincide with OCD that are like, um, we're going to see a little bit later on with this like germaphobe thing. Natasha did visit him in Norway in 2004. His mother liked her and he was actually the first female that he introduced to Venka. Natasha was materialistic. She wanted to shop and give Anders the bill. That was her idea of a good time. She said that he was chauvinistic, and he said that she was a gold digger. Actually, I think that both of them were probably right. She would eventually marry an American dude. So his mother's upset that Anders is still single while all of his friends have girlfriends or wives. His fake diploma career would come to an end when his business partner in this endeavor got a call from a Norwegian newspaper and they actually ran an article on this fake diploma business, not his, but just in general. And there was a company in the United States that had flagged four websites as like being fishy. And yeah, Anders was one of them. In the meantime, about 2005, the Labour Party came back into power. And as we're going to see, this is a very big deal for him. The Labour Party represented everything that Anders hated. The regulation of the market, more control of the economy, bigger fines for financial crimes like, uh, you know, fake diplomas. And he hated paying taxes, but nobody likes taxes. But in general, people that are like conservative, like he was, are anti-government, anti-big government, paying taxes, etc. So on Christmas Eve, him and his mom went to a relative of, of the mom. And he noticed that they had candles that were symbols of the Freemasons. And Anders had always wanted to be a Freemason. He has this thing, like he, he wants to be in these elite groups. And he always saw them as power elite. And um, in order to get into the Freemasons, understandably, you have to have somebody like sponsor you. He asked his mom's relative if he would help him get in. And the guy was kind of reluctant because he didn't really know Anders. So he's like, well, okay, give me some time to work on it. 
And interestingly, the uh, Freemasons are, you have to be a Christian to get in. They're based on Christian values like humility, tolerance, compassion, none of which Anders had, which is kind of ironic. And one of their, I guess you call it a motto or something, is truth comes in symbols and images. Now, in 2006, he got this dude, it was actually his mom's cousin, to make a call. I guess Anders kept pestering him. And he got to meet the Freemasons. They uh, said, you know, come to our lodge and we'll we'll meet you. And he was real impressed by, they had these like suits of armor decorating their hall. And they had, uh, I guess their decor was kind of like medieval or, or um, remind you of like the Crusades or stuff like that. So he was given like an interview by the master of the lodge. And just like, well, I mean, when I pledged a sorority, it was this way, and I'm thinking it's kind of similar. You have to get through, like, a process. You know, it's, it's like you're not just like, okay, we'll accept you. There's like a, you know, a thing that you have to go through. So Anders thought if he did something like this, like became a Freemason, his dad would see him, and, because remember, he's ostracized from his dad for being a graffiti artist. And, you know, if he was a Freemason, he would be proud of him. Now... He got a new obsession. This has an obsession. Again, I'm thinking obsessive-compulsive personality. But he spends all this time on on the computer, and he gets sucked into these massive multiplayer role-playing games. I'm sure everybody knows what those are. You might even play them yourself, and there's nothing wrong with that. But some people get, like, really, really sucked into them to the point where they kind of lose their grip on reality, kind of like him. And the ones he preferred were Worlds of Warcraft, which was released in 2001. And he would sit there like for hours and hours and hours at a time at his computer playing this game. And from what I understand, I've never played it, but I just looked, I just did a little bit of research on it because I was curious. You move through levels like, everybody starts out as equal, and then you move up, you, you pick, like, a class. And it kind of reminded me of Dungeons & Dragons. I don't know if anybody remembers that. It was, like, mainly a nerd thing. And you pick, like, a profession, and, like, as you move up this ladder, you have more demanding tasks. And you eventually have to join, like, a guild. So his name in this game or his character's name was Anders Nordic, and he was a male human mage. If you don't know what a mage is, it's like a witch, sorcerer, warlock, somebody that makes magic. And I want you to keep in mind, okay, all the themes that he's attracted to. The worlds of worlds of that's hard to say. WOW. It has like a medieval theme. He's a mage. He goes on quests. The Freemasons with their imagery because all of this is going to become very important to him. His character, and I guess you could design them yourself. I don't know, but it is interesting to note. It was a dude. It was, he was tall and powerful. 
with a menacing grayish face. Don't know why it was gray, but he had on a night outfit with like decorations and doodads and shit like that. He said that playing this game calmed him down. While they were playing, the gamers would wear like headsets and talk to each other. And he was known among these other gamers as cheerful and inspiring and well-liked. His mother was irritated because he was always in his room playing games. And I know a lot of teenagers are like this, but this is a grown-ass man. And she's probably like, he would spend 16 to 17 hours a day playing this game. And she was probably like, dude, get a job or do something around the house. Oh, did I mention by now he's back with his mother? He's back with his mother now. So after six months of playing, he is, I don't know if you're like elected or whatever, but he becomes the leader of his guild. And he's like all proud of himself. And in the game, and keep in mind that I said that he seems to have a problem distinguishing fantasy from reality. They, meaning the characters in the game, would go on raids. And if he was on a raid, he did absolutely did not want to be disturbed. He'd be like, I'm busy. I'm on a raid. Fuck off. You know, I'm saving the world or whatever I'm doing. And just um, keep in mind that, okay, all this stuff is going on in his life. He's in this game, which he's totally absorbed in, almost to the point where, and we're actually going to hear a psychiatrist for his defense bring this up later. And I'm not saying at all, I'm, believe me, I'm not excusing his behavior at all. But the psychiatrist just has the opinion that perhaps he could not distinguish between this game and reality. And it's interesting, is all I'm saying. So in this game, he goes on raids. He thinks he's a knight. He He's attracted to Freemasonry because of this medieval kind of uh, romantic knights and so forth and chivalry and, and whatnot. So in February of 2007, he gets a letter saying that he's been admitted to the first degree of the St. John Lodge, which is you know, the Freemasons. So his mom's cousin takes him to the headquarters and they talk about knights and guilds and stuff like that. There's a ceremony, some kind of ceremony, like I guess inducting him or welcoming welcoming him, whatever. He signed a document saying that he professed himself to the Christian faith and would never reveal secrets of the Freemasons. For all of that that he went through and pestered this guy and everything, he only ever went to one meeting, which is kind of weird. And he might be too obsessed with World of Warcraft to leave his computer and, and go out in the real world. His goal in this game was to kill every monster that was made in the game. And I have no idea how many monsters are in the game or how doable that is. But remember now, okay, he's like in his 30s and that's like his lifetime goal. When something in the game didn't go his way, he would pout and he would like harass. Other players like nag them and push them. Like somebody needed to shake him and say, dude, it's a 
game. And he just, again, did not seem to grasp this concept. One player called him a bully and a control freak. And he was actually removed from a form, you know, in-game form or something. Some of the players, and I don't know, I don't understand the game, so I don't know if this means people on his in his guild, his team, or whatever, actually quit playing because of him. I mean, this is how obnoxious he was. Like, late at night, when other people would be offline, like normal people would go to bed or, or something, people that had lives, he would throw people out. I don't, again, don't know how you do that, if you can, but apparently he could for whatever reason. And somebody, another player, made the quote, who's that megalomaniac? And I think that's the perfect word for him. Like, you cannot get much of a better word to describe him megalomaniac. I mean, that just absolutely fits into a T. Okay, keep in mind this is a game, and people don't really see him, but they see how he acts, and even in this game, he was a misfit, and other people would make fun of him, which is pretty funny. Around 2008, he finally stopped with this game, and he started to go out, and his friends noticed that he's now the obsession. Well, this is kind of an older one, but it's now like to the point of, I don't even know. He's now obsessed with Islam. And he would say stuff like, and this is a quote, the Muslims are waging democratic war and the Labour Party has ruined our country. It's feminized the state and made it into a matriarchy. And more than anything, it's made a place where it's impossible to get rich. The Labour Party's let the Muslims occupy, blah, blah, blah. He keeps getting on the websites, one called Gates of Vienna, which is about European history. And the emblem of this thing was called White Pride Worldwide. And he would follow some writers. One was named Feward Man. And this fjord man was called the Dark Prophet of Norway, and he predicted the ruination of Europe if the current trend continued, meaning the um, immigration of Muslims to Europe. And he coined this term called Muslim Eurabia, E-U-R-A-B-I-A. And remember the term Eurabia because you're going to see it again. So, Anders is getting more and more heated about this topic. And he's like, damn it, why don't these people understand that the only answer to saving our country is to deport all Muslims? It's like the only rational thing to do, he thinks. So, he's like, how can I make myself heard? So, in 2009, his friends tried to get him to go out for his 30th birthday. He's like, no, I'm not interested. He's like, I have to go to a Mason thing, which he did, but he left in the middle of it, which is kind of weird. I mean, he like busted his ass trying to get into this group and he finally gets in and then he's like, just loses interest. I, I just don't really understand that. He even withdrew from the online community and his gaming friends. So he's becoming like a, like a total recluse or hermit. And his mother said that all he talked about was this dude called Fjord Man. And 
it was obvious that this was Andrew's idol now. So in 2009, the Labour Party won again. And what he started doing was he would use Facebook as a tool to gather friends and people who were like like-minded. By like-minded, I mean racist and Islamophobes and the, you know, people like that. He used Facebook as a way to spread his message, meaning like message of hatred. And during all this time that he's like sequestered himself, he's working on his manifesto. And I think we know what that is. I mentioned it at the very beginning. The manifesto was a very thick document and you might be able to find the, if you're so inclined, find the entire file online somewhere. I didn't look at it because, well, I mean, I don't have a printer for one thing. And it's huge. It's not like it's a couple pages. It's like hundreds of pages. And he's so unimaginative that most of it was copied and pasted from other places. And the main source that he stole from, I think everybody knows who Ted Kaczynski is, right? The Unabomber. Like when you think manifesto, you automatically think Ted Kaczynski. Well, he actually copied and pasted most of Kaczynski's ideas into his, but he, he changed a few words. Like, uh, I forget what Kaczynski's problems were. I think it was like anti-government, modernization of things, where with Bravik it was immigration and Muslims were his main target of hate. So the main idea of this manifesto was he blamed everything wrong in Europe on immigration and Islam. He wanted to go back to the values of the 50s, like I, I said before, but he wanted to be a 50s house husband. That's exactly what he wanted. These very conservative times when men worked and women stayed home and had kids and that's exactly what he wanted. And he said, quote, and this is from the manifesto, the man of today is expected to be a touchy-feely subspecies who bows to the radical feminist agenda, end quote. Subspecies? He claimed in this that the Muslims plan to conquer the West and kill Christians and Jews. The title of this manifesto was... 2083, a European Declaration of Independence. And somebody asked him, why did he pick the year 2083? And he said, well, it's 400 years after the 1683 Battle of Vienna, which was the start of the Ottoman downfall in Europe, which, um, okay, whatever. It was basically a declaration of war. And in the, I'm not going to get too much into it, but he said that phase one would be civil war till 2030. This would consist of attacks by secret cells, you know, terrorist cells. Phase two, 2030 to 2070, when there were more adversarial resistant fronts. And finally, phase three, which was after 2070. This would consist of the execution of traitors, and after 2083 would be peace. The Knights Templar 
would lead both the Civil War and the construction of the new society. And remember, this is all in his head. Of course, he held the highest rank in the organization. It was called the Justicious Knight Commander. Now, in 2002, in London, there was an initial meeting of a group, this would be like a right-wing group, called the English Defense League, or EDL. This was a UK group. He went to this first meeting, and um, they said later on, after these attacks, that he was too crazed and militant for them. They're like, get out of here. We, you know, we don't want you. You're wacko. In after the attacks of 2011, somebody from this group issued a statement condemning the attacks. They claimed that the League was peaceful and rejected extremism. And they said, quote, there has never been any official contact between him and the EDL. There is no evidence that Boravik was ever one of our supporters, end quote. And another UK organization called Stop Islamization of Europe said he tried to join their Facebook group, but he was rejected because in his, uh, somewhere on his page, he had neo-Nazi links. So he's even too radical for these radical Facebook groups. In his manifesto, besides copying and pasting and stealing ideas from everybody, he kind of made a diary of like what he did, you know, playing these games and doing this and that. And that's how we know a lot of what he did during this period of time. Now, this manifesto or log was written in like a didactic teaching way, like he was instructing somebody. And I don't know if he actually thought that someday other people were going to read it and follow it. Um, it's hard to tell with him. But in it, he discussed ideas for this revolution or whatever it was that he called it. Before he came upon the idea of the bomb, he debated on sending anthrax through the mail, using chemical weapons, and spreading radiation, which that one just doesn't make any sense to me. But early on, he knew that whatever he was going to do, that he would need a police uniform. So he got all the pieces for this from different places on the internet, and he made a fake badge like a plastic thing that, that hung around his neck. And you'll see pictures of it, and it looks extremely realistic. It fooled just about, well, it fooled everybody. So he quit playing this World of Warcraft. I don't know if he got tired of it or whatever, but he got involved in a new video game called Call of Duty. And this is a first-person shooter game developed in 2003, and it's verified by Guinness World Records as the best-selling first-person shooter game series, um, the most successful video game franchise created in the United States, and the third best-selling video game ever. So, extremely popular game. The version that he played, and as I understand, there were very, there's a bunch of different versions. He played one called Modern Warfare. 
and he said that he used it for training. One whole chapter of his manifesto was called Killing Women on the Field of Battle. One of the sentences in this chapter said, quote, You must therefore embrace and familiarize yourself with the concept of killing women. End quote. And another uh, instruction that he had in the, the manifesto was, quote, Once you decide to strike, it is better to kill too many than not enough, or you risk reducing the desired ideological impact of the strike. Quote. Another um, tip that he had in there, in there was kind of amusing. He said, equip yourself with a personal picture gallery, because if you get arrested, the police will only show, quote, retarded looking photos of you, end quote. It's so amusing that people who want to be models or something have like a portfolio, you know, like a modeling portfolio, and he's got a um, arrest portfolio. The, the narcissism is just off the charts here. He looked forward to a trial because this would be his opportunity to denounce Marxism and Islamism. And as we'll see later on, that's what he did. And he, about that, he said, quote, you will then achieve the status of a living martyr, end quote. And I think it's, I don't know if it's during the trial, but it, at some point he did refer to himself as a martyr. And the, the things he thought up, it's like, I, I don't know where he got these ideas, but this was one of the most bizarre he said that when the Civil War was over, you know, the one that he imagined, that th there would be this kind of new society that he fantasized about. There would be factories of surrogate mothers, like baby factories mainly, who produce blonde, blue-eyed kids. And this, of course, is eugenics, like the Nazis practiced or believed in. And he said that because blue eyes are a recessive trait, that it's important to save them like an endangered species. In this new society that he envisioned, there would be abstinence, which totally doesn't make any sense because how are you supposed to produce more blonde, blue-eyed people if you're abstinent? And the patriarchy would be rebuilt. Remember, he thinks that Norway has been turned into a matriarchy. And very importantly, he said that fathers would be given custody in divorce cases. And this goes right back to his personal life. Remember where he was given to his mother instead of his father. And uh, it turned out to be, in retrospect, maybe not the best idea. During this time, he's still living with his mother. And she said that he creeped her out with his constant talk of politics, Islam, this book that he was working on, meaning the manifesto. He called her a feminist with Marxist tendencies. And sometimes she dreaded going home because she never knew what kind of state of mind he would be in. He had these wild mood swings and he would react violently to little things. He accused her of talking to people who could, 
quote, infect them, uh, just totally not based in reality. Again, the germ thing comes to mind again, the fear of germs. He would wear a face mask and gloves around the apartment for no apparent reason. Another thing he was doing to add to this uh, instability was taking anabolic steroids. And these are like the bad kind, you know, the illegal kind that you hear of athletes using. The only legitimate reason that you would have to take them is if you had something like cancer or AIDS. And you've heard of roid rage. You know, those are, that's one of the side effects or things that can happen when people abuse them. And some of the other things that can happen when you take anabolic steroids, and these are worth mentioning, are mood swings, irritability, paranoia, anxiety, aggression, violence, recklessness, mania, delusions, cognitive impairment. So uh, that does explain some of his behavior with the instability, the mood swings, anxiety, paranoia. We're going to see a little bit more of the paranoia come out later, but this next item is so bizarre, and it's it's funny because it's just so ridiculous. Okay, his mother had a boyfriend at one time, and he's, you know, they're broke up now. She's single. So he buys her a vibrator. He bought his mother a fucking vibrator. And if that's not bad enough, he kept asking her if she'd used it yet. I just have no words. So eventually he decides that he's going to make a bomb. And he does his research on the internet. He studies, you know, other famous bombs and bomb makers like the Oklahoma City bomb and Al-Qaeda and amateur uh, chemists and, you know, people that supposedly know what they're doing. He realizes that he's going to need a place with a lot of room and privacy. So in May 2009, what he does is he sets up a company called Breivik Geoform, and he registers it with the Norwegian Registry of Business Enterprises. And of course, it's not a real farm, but you know, it's just like a front for his bomb making. So in the spring of 2010 is when he starts buying stuff. Most of it he bought on the internet. He bought a bulletproof pelican case from the United States, and that's like it. You'll see it's the case that he puts his weapons in. He buys smoke grenades, laser sights, spike strips, flashing blue lights, GPS, silencers, firearm magazines. All of this stuff he stores in either the attic or the basement of the apartment building so that his mom wouldn't find it. Probably only about half that stuff he ended up using, but he wrote to the council asking for a farm in an isolated location, and he used his manifesto as kind of a, like a personal diary too, and one of the weird things that he wrote, one of the many weird things that he wrote in it was a couple tidbits about his family, and I don't know where he got this shit from. He must have just made it up because it's absolutely ridiculous. He wrote that his sister Elizabeth, quote, was infected by chlamydia 
after having more than 40 sex partners. Her chlamydia went untreated and she became one of several million U.S. European women who were suffering from pelvic inflammatory disease caused by untreated gonorrhea and chlamydia, which leads to infertility, end quote. No idea where he got this from. And then he goes on to say, quote, my mother was infected with genital herpes by her boyfriend when she was 48. Tor, that's the boyfriend, who was a captain in the Norwegian army, had more than 500 sex partners, and my mother knew this, but suffered from lack of good judgment and morals due to several factors. She now has the intellectual capacity of a 10-year-old. She brought shame on the family that was broken in the first place due to the secondary effects of the feministic sexual revolution. End quote. Again, my mother is a slut and she shamed the family because of the changing sexual roles in Norway and the, the freedom of women. So his mom saw his shotgun in his bedroom and she wasn't real pleased with that. And, um, She's like, you, you can't live here with all these weapons. And then she noticed about these all these boxes coming and that he would take them and go to the basement. She's like, what are you doing down there with all this shit that, that you're ordering? Like, you know, what's going on? And apparently she didn't, like, investigate it too much. But he got his police, the uniform pieces, and he started to sew different patches and insignia on it from... Military supply stores or, or places he got army boots, a helmet, a bulletproof vest, body armor, a neck protector, and a gas mask. He never ended up using the gas mask. I don't know what that was for. And it should be noted that it was around Christmas, the holidays, that he was getting all these boxes. And the Norwegian post office was so inundated with holiday packages to notice all these packages and shit going to Mr. Breivik. So January of 2011, he gets a semi-automatic Glock 17. This is a pistol and it's popular due to its simple design and accuracy. The next gun he gets was a semi-automatic Storm Ruger Mini 14 model. And there's nothing mini about this. This is a big-ass gun. If you look on the uh, most of the social media pictures and most of the videos, this is like his main weapon. And he has it all tricked out. He's got the scope and the laser sight. And it's very big. It's a sniper rifle. And it was used in um, SWAT teams. And he also got a special trigger for it to make rapid firing easier. Interestingly, he ordered a silencer, but for whatever reason, they whoever he got it from wasn't able to fulfill this order. I don't know why he thought he needed a silencer. Well, I mean, there's so many things about him that just don't make sense, I guess. You can't really try to analyze everything he does, but in May of 2011, he moves to his farm in the town of Velstua. And by this time, he had started amassing his 
bomb making equipment in October 2010. So he moves all these boxes and, and shit that he has to the farm. I'm not going to go into too much detail about how he made the bomb. Not that, like, if I told you what I found that you could make a bomb. I mean, if you wanted to bad enough, you could just go to get on the internet like he did and figure it out. So it, it's not like I'm, you know, encouraging you to make bombs. But I don't really want to bore everybody. Because I, the book that I read, and I have the link in my show notes, excellent book. But as much detail as that goes in, even that is still not like a step-by-step how to do this. But I have to admit, I was fascinated by the process. Just because um, of the chemistry involved, I just have this interest in chemistry about how things are made. And about the extraordinary length that he went to to figure out all this stuff, order all this stuff, and then make it. And it shows a lot of determination on his part that, you know, come hell or high water, I'm making this fucking bomb. And it, it sounds very complicated. Like, I had a headache just from reading this. But I will just kind of go over it, just to give you an idea of how difficult it was, how time-consuming it was, what was involved. So he got acid from car dealers, and he got powdered sulfur from eBay. He got sodium nitrate from Poland. He had ethanol, acetone, caustic soda, your normal like lab stuff like flasks, bottles, etc., etc., he got a fuse several meters long, and this he got from one of thousands of fireworks sellers in Europe. And what is, I guess, kind of disturbing is the ease at which he was able to get this stuff, like how readily available these things are. And if they weren't really readily available, he used some different sneaky tactics to get around. Like he was just really, really determined to make this bomb. I had never heard of this, but I found it interesting, so I'll share it with you. One of the main components of the bomb was salicylic acid, which is a derivative of acetyl salicylic acid, which you might be familiar with as aspirin. So what he had to do in this for him turned out to be the hardest part of making the bomb and it took up the most time. It caused him the most frustration. He had to isolate the salicylic acid from the aspirin. And this is kind of like, what's that show? Breaking Bad, where the guy makes meth. This is like some Breaking Bad shit. Like, I have to admit that I'm kind of, um, I guess, I don't know if I want to use the word admire, but... How he was able, this is somebody with no chemical background. This is a high school dropout. Remember that. That he was able to get on the internet, figure out all this shit out, and do this is kind of impressive. And this was weird too. He had to get a couple hundred packets of aspirin. And in Norway, you could only buy like two packs of aspirin at a time. Or it, it would like alert the cashier or whoever like say hey you know this person's had enough aspirin you can't sell them anymore 
I seriously did not know that was a thing. Here in the United States, if you try to buy Sudafed, um, and, you know, I've, I've done it before, if you go to the pharmacy and ask for, not the stuff you get over the counter, but like real Sudafed, you have to give them your driver's license and they write down your name. Because if if you don't know, if you're going to make meth, the stuff is is extracted from Sudafed. Anyway, how I got around this was... He found all the different pharmacies around town, and he would just kind of go in cycles, go to the four or five different pharmacies, buy as much aspirin as he could at one time, and then just like the next week, do it again until he had amassed enough aspirin in order to do this. So what he did was he had to crush all this aspirin into a powder. And this is interesting, just a little fun fact. I was reading about aspirin, and it said that in a factory where they're making aspirin tablets, they have to strictly control the amount of powder that becomes airborne inside the building because the mixture of powder and air can be explosive. Did not know that. Anyway, salicylic acid is an organic compound, and it comes from the Latin salix meaning willow tree which is aspirin comes from bark of the willow tree and it, it looks like kind of looks like meth like a crystallized powder so anyway he crushes the aspirin with dumbbells and he did he started doing this on the second day that he was in the farm in four hours he crushed 50 packs of aspirin in the meantime, he, while he's making the bomb, he's training himself for this mission. He's taking steroids. He's also drinking four protein shakes a day. He's drinking Red Bull, which is disgusting. And he's taking something called ECA. And it's a mix of ephedrine, caffeine, and aspirin. Ephedrine, I've never heard of this. It's a nervous system stimulant used to treat breathing problems like asthma. It's similar in composition to meth. It increases your heart rate, makes you jittery, gives you heart palpitations. So, okay, he's doing steroids, he's drinking Red Bull, he has caffeine and ephedrine. He has to be a mess. Imagine the state of mind. No wonder he has mood swings and he's paranoid and in all this. So, Another major component of the bomb was fertilizer, and he had two tons of fertilizer. Fertilizer apparently comes in pellets. He, how he crushed them was he used hand mixers or blenders, you know, like the kind that you use in a kitchen for um, whatever you do in kitchens. I don't know. But he had like a, a bunch of these going at once, crushing these fertilizer pellets. Then he had to synthesize something called picric acid, which I never heard of, but apparently it's an organic compound used in the production of explosives, matches, and electric batteries. It's a very unstable, it's a toxic thing. On YouTube, there's a video called Picric Acid Synthesis. So his primary explosive was the diazo dinitrophenol ddnp second the 
secondary explosive was the picric acid. So in June, he made a test bomb, took it into the woods at night because he doesn't want to attract attention. It blew up, so he's all excited. And he goes to Oslo to a restaurant to celebrate. And this is worth noting because it's hilarious. One time he went to a restaurant in town and he comes back and he writes in his his log, quote, there was a relatively hot girl in the restaurant today checking me out. Refined individuals like myself are a rare commodity here. So I notice I do get a lot of attention. It's the way I dress and look, end quote. Dude, get over yourself, please. He's so disgusting. So speaking of the way he looked, he looked out of place. Remember, he's pretending to be a farmer and he goes around looking all, I don't know, natty or fashionable or or whatever he thinks he is. And the other farmers around the area start talking about him. They're like, what is up with this dude? He's not a farmer. There's nothing growing in his, you know, farm. His grass is long. He's got this lock on the gate. And the farm stunk like chemicals. And Anders wrote, this is so funny. It smells like fresh egg fart because of the sulfur that he used. And I know exactly what that smells like because I live maybe a quarter of a mile from a steel mill. And when they're making steel, the sky's like kind of yellowish. And it smells like just this giant fart smell. So making this bomb took way longer than he planned. On July 2nd, he went to Utoya for reconnaissance. He also went to the gym get himself, you know, pumped up some, got some more steroids. So while he was in town, he took his mom out to dinner. And little interesting anecdote, him and his mother were outside on the balcony smoking, which I find it really strange that he smokes given, I was going to say, given that he's into physical fitness, but he takes steroids and Red Bull and ephedrine and all kinds of like poisonous shit. So maybe it's not that weird after all. But anyway, they're both standing there and Anders says to his mom, quote, don't stand so close to me. People might think I'm retarded. End quote. She let that sink in because wow. Okay. So she remembered that once before they were walking down the street together and he told her to walk a few steps behind him so that people wouldn't think he was, quote, mentally defective. Okay, that makes absolutely no sense at all. This dude is beyond weird. On July 15th, he took a train to Oslo to get a rental car, and he left the car downtown, you know, by the government buildings. And he also got a van, which he drove back to the farm. On July 18th, his bomb was finally ready, and he packed it in the van in two plastic, like, sacks. And the detonator and booster were in a separate box. It was a cardboard box lined with mattresses. So he puts all his other supplies in, like the case with the guns, ammunition, 3,000 bullets. And on Wednesday, the 20th, he drove the Volkswagen van with the bombs in it 
downtown to Oslo, and he had already timed how long the bomb took to explode, and it was a total of 75 seconds. So he parks the van at a place called Olson's Window Garden Center, and he even took the decals and stuff, any, like, markings off the van so that it wouldn't be, like, visible or, you know, notable. Took his mom out to dinner one more time. So on Thursday, July 21st, while a bunch of young people are arriving at the camp on Utoya, they're all excited, and they did karaoke that night. Anders locked the door of his farmhouse and drove away, and he, I guess for lock or whatever, he carried a Knights Templar coin in his pocket. So when it's dark, he parks the Fiat alongside the van, which are outside government buildings in Oslo. So he's exhausted from all this bomb making and everything. It's almost midnight. He goes to his mom's for the night, and they go on the balcony and smoke. And once again, he goes through the mom don't stand so close to me thing. He went to bed. He wanted to be up at 3 a.m. for a special reason. There was to be a guest speaker on Utoya at 11 o'clock that morning. And this was none other than the famous Gro, the old prime minister. And he especially wanted to see her. He, he wrote this in his, his uh, manifesto. He wanted to decapitate her, film this, and put it on YouTube. Fortunately for Gro, he was too tired to get up at three. And while the kids were on Utoya singing around the campfire and getting into their tents, more singing, giggling, just doing things that happy young people do at a camp, he's snoozing away in bed at his mother's house. And I'm going to leave you for right now because, you know, there's, this is going to be continued next week. The last entry in the manifesto is, quote, the old saying, if you want something done, then do it yourself, is as relevant now as it was then. I believe this will be my last entry. It is now Friday, July 22nd, 1251. Anders Breivik, Justician Knight Commander, Cell 8, Knights Templar, York. So I will see you back here next week. I promise it'll be the last of this dude that we're going to talk about. And stick around. Make sure you, you tune in on the 23rd. It's going to be my holiday special. It's going to be fun. I promise. And it'll be family friendly. So class dismissed.